one of the things that, that I've come to believe is that much of life is about creating and seizing opportunity. When I think about my life, I think about the opportunities that were extended to me to which I said yes. In fact, I, I just read, maybe you saw this a couple of weeks ago, less than two weeks ago, I think, in, in Wyoming, Kendall Cummings had an opportunity to be a hero. Maybe you heard the story, maybe you didn't. He had an opportunity to be a hero. He's a wrestler, by the way, and he was out with his wrestling buddy. They're both college wrestlers near Cody, Wyoming, and they were out, and, and a grizzly bear attacked Kendall Cummings' buddy. Now, what do you do when a bear attacks your buddy? Well, Kendall Cummings is a man, you know, and he's a wrestler. And so what he did is he jumped the bear and grabbed him by the ears. <laughs> well... It didn't take long for him to wonder if that was a wise move or not because the bear then turned its attention to Kendall Cummings and tore him up pretty bad. But they both did survive. He had hundreds of stitches and scars on it. I mean, all kinds of stuff. But, 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 but he will forever be remembered as the person who became a hero taking the opportunity to rescue a friend. That's a friend who has your back, a friend who will do that. Well, I wonder if in your own life you can think about opportunities God has given you to which you said yes that changed everything. When I think back on my life, I think of things that happened, uh, the death of a dog that God used to bring me to faith in Jesus when I was just a young boy. But then I think about ministry. I grew up in Montana, in Whitefish, Montana. I was going to be an engineer. Went to Butte, Montana, to engineering school there. And while there, got involved in a church and in the Baptist Collegiate Ministry. And after I married my wife, our junior year, the pastor asked us if we would teach the high school Sunday school class, first class I ever taught. <laughs> and I said yes. And that really changed everything. And then the BSU director left, and they said, would you direct the BSU your senior year? I didn't know anything. I was a petroleum engineering major. But I said yes. And it was really the, uh, the experience teaching that high school class and directing the BSU that year that God changed everything in my life. And I surrendered to preach and moved to Texas to go to seminary after I graduated. And, and probably some of you could tell similar stories about how you were presented an opportunity to which you said yes, and it changed everything for you. We're going to look at a passage of Scripture this morning. In fact, it's a rather extensive text, but it's important that we read, I think, the entire story. It's in 1 Samuel chapter 14. A story about Jonathan, King Saul's son. Saul himself makes an appearance in this story, but it's the 14th chapter of 1 Samuel in which Jonathan seizes, creates, and seizes an opportunity for himself. It changed everything. And notice what it says. We're going to, the very last verse in chapter 13, 1 Samuel, chapter 13, verse 23, and then following. It says, Now a Philistine garrison took control of the pass at Michmash. That same day, Saul's son Jonathan said to the attendant who carried his weapons, Come on. Let's cross over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. However, he did not tell his father. Saul, his father, 
was staying under a pomegranate tree at Migron on the outskirts of Gibeah. The troops with him numbered about 600. So if you get the picture, Saul, the king, has 600 men with him. God told them to fight the Philistines, but Saul is under a tree with his 600 men. In verse 4, there were sharp columns of rock on both sides of the pass that Jonathan intended to cross to reach the Philistine garrison. One was named Bozes and the other Senna. One stood to the north in front of Michmash and the other to the south in front of Geba. Jonathan, and this is a key verse, Jonathan said to the attendant who carried his weapons, Come on, let's cross over to the garrison of these uncircumcised men. Perhaps the Lord will help us. Nothing can keep the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. His armor bearer responded, Do what is in your heart. Go ahead. I am completely with you. All right, Jonathan replied. We'll cross over to the men and let them see us. If they say, Wait until we reach you, then we will stay where we are and not go up to them. But if they say, come on up, then we'll go up, because the Lord has handed them over to us. That will be our sign. They let themselves be seen by the Philistine garrison. And the Philistines said, look, the Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they have been hiding. The men of the garrison called to Jonathan and his armor bearer, come on up. And we'll teach you a lesson, they said. Follow me, Jonathan told his armor bearer, for the Lord has handed them over to Israel. Jonathan climbed up using his hands and feet with his armor bearer behind, behind him. Jonathan cut them down and his armor bearer followed and finished them off. In that first assault, Jonathan and his armor bearer struck down about 20 men in a half-acre field. Terror spread through the Philistine camp and the open fields to all the troops. Even the garrison and the raiding parties were terrified. The earth shook and terror spread from God. When Saul's watchmen in Gibeah of Benjamin looked, they saw the panicking troops scattering in every direction. So Saul said to the troops with him, Call the roll and determine who has left us. They called the roll and saw that Jonathan and his armor bearer were gone. Saul told Ahijah, Bring the ark of God, for it was with the Israelites at that time. While Saul spoke to the priest, the panic in the Philistine camp increased in intensity. So Saul said to the priest, stop what you're doing. Saul and all the troops with him assembled and marched to the battle. And there the Philistines were, fighting against each other and in great confusion. There were Hebrews from the area who had gone earlier into the camp to join the Philistines. But even they joined the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. When all the Israelite men 
who had been hiding in the hill country of Ephraim, heard that the Philistines were fleeing, they also joined Saul and Jonathan in the battle. So the Lord saved Israel that day. That's a great story. I love that story. It really illustrates uh, faith, obedience, the willingness to take a risk to do what God has given you to do. When was it that we determined that taking risk was too much for us to bear? Tom Peters, the business guru, years ago wrote an article. He said, we used to teach our kids how to assess risk. And so when the pond froze over with ice, children were taught how to assess the ice and whether they could get safely on the ice and skate. He said, now we rope off the pond and simply say, stay off the ice. They don't learn how to assess risk. Jonathan had to assess the risk of being obedient to God. And he determined that God had told them that they were to fight the Philistines. That command was clear, and therefore he was willing to take the risk to step out with all the uncertainty that entailed and take the fight to the Philistines. Now, there are certain important truths I think we learn in this, and the first is this. Uh, God never asks us to do anything that we can do without Him. If you think about it in your church, in your family, in your own life, God never asks you to do something that you're capable of doing without Him. God will not invite you to leave Him out. If God only asks us to do things that we're capable of doing without Him, then we could live life without faith and without risk. But when you look through the Scriptures, you never find that ever to be the case. Abraham. God told Abraham, leave the land of your birth and go to the land that I will show you. And the Bible says, Abraham left and it was reckoned unto him as righteousness because he had faith that God told him to go. He didn't know where he would wind up, but he went. God called Moses to return to Egypt and to lead the Hebrew people out of Egypt. Moses didn't know exactly how that was going to happen. But when he finally determined that it was God calling him to do that, even though he didn't know how God would do that, didn't know about the ten plagues and the death of the firstborn and the frogs and the blood and the water, didn't know any of that. What he did know was, this can't be done if God doesn't show up. Daniel in the lion's den, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, David and Goliath. You think about Mary giving birth to the Messiah. All throughout the book of Acts, every story in the book of Acts, and throughout Christian history. Everything that we know from Scripture and everything that we know from what God has done in Christian history would tell us that God calls upon us to do things that we cannot do if He doesn't show up. I think my favorite phrase in this passage is when Jonathan says, maybe the Lord will do something. (laughs) 
Let's go. Let's attack. Maybe God will do something. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. In fact, biblically, we know God prefers to save by few. The story of Gideon paring down the army of 30,000 to 300. David and Goliath. All of the stories of Scripture. God always does things in such a way that he receives the glory. In fact, the final statement in this text, I think, is telling. When you think about everything that Jonathan did and all that the Israelites did to defeat the Philistines, and yet the final sentence in our text is in verse 23, so the Lord saved Israel that day. God did the work, but God did the work through his people always true God calls out the missionaries and sends them but he does it through the church God ministers to the broken and the hurting and the grieving in Richland Washington but God does it through the church does it through you the Lord does the saving but the work of the witness is essential to the saving We see that throughout Scripture. So I would ask you the question, what are you doing? How are you living that is impossible to do and to live in that way without God? Now, it's impossible to have a Christian marriage without God. It's impossible to raise children to love the Lord with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength and to love their neighbor as themselves without God. You can't love your enemy without the Lord. Some of those basic requirements are impossible to do without God. How are you living? What are you doing that you can't do? It's interesting because the blessing is evident when God calls us to do something. Saul apparently thought he was blessed because Saul was king and Saul was sitting safely under the pomegranate tree enjoying the fruits of the wealth of the king. But that was not the evidence of blessing. The evidence of blessing was what God was doing in the life of Jonathan. Creating in his heart a desire to obey, a desire to risk, a desire to live by faith and not by sight. And it was Jonathan who received the blessing and was under the favor of God, not Saul, who at that moment was quite secure under the tree. When you play it safe and live by sight and not by faith, you squeeze God out. Squeeze him out. In essence, you don't need him. Now, that's never true. But it is true that if we aren't living by faith, if we're only living by sight, if we're only looking at the resources we can see and feel and touch, then we don't need God like we do when we're with Jonathan, stepping out and saying, if God doesn't show up, I'm a dead man. If God doesn't show up, this is a disaster. But if God shows up, 
Maybe he will, and when he does, and if he does, there'll be a great victory. By the way, do you remember how Jonathan died? He died in battle. See, in this occasion, Jonathan said, maybe God will show up. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many by, whether or by few. But later on in his life, the way Jonathan went to meet God was he died in battle against the Philistines together with his dad, Saul, and others in their family. We live in a world in which there's great uncertainty. There are some things about which we can be certain. The gospel, the resurrection of Christ, the call of God, the certainty of our salvation, the certainty that all of history is moving toward that coming day, when Christ will return and the trumpet will sound. There are certainties on which we build our life, but apparently it is the will of God that we live with uncertainty about what's going to happen and how our life on this earth is going to end and what's going to go on today and tomorrow. We just don't know the particulars of that. What we do know is it's always right to live by faith to seek the presence and the will of God and then to step out and honor Him and live for Him. You know, there were many, the text tells us, that were on the sidelines. They were sort of observing from afar. And many of those, once Jonathan took the fight to the Philistines, they joined the fight. But the people on the sidelines are often an irritant to us, aren't they? Especially if, if you're the one trying to get things done, you're the one trying to teach the class, you're the one trying to serve, trying to do. You really don't want to hear from those on the sideline about how you could do it better. I don't know if you watched a little of the World Series the last couple of nights, but there's a story of a coach who didn't like the way the center fielder was playing. So he said, get out of there. Get out. I'm going to go. I'm going I'm to show you how to play this position. And so he went out and played, and he did a horrible, horrible job. And he came back to the center fielder, and he said, you got the center field so messed up, even I can't play it. <laughs> There's much more joy, and more importantly, the presence of God in your life when you're the one living by faith and relying upon God to show up and work through you if in fact you're to be successful at all. Something else I think we see in this text and that is when you step out and follow the Lord you don't know where the journey is going to take you but you do know why you're on the journey. You don't know what tomorrow's going to bring, but you know why you're doing what you are. Jonathan had an understanding of why he was going to step out and attack those Philistines uphill, by the way. It's not the way you want to do it. Much better to attack downhill. He didn't know exactly how, what that journey was, where it was going to take him, but he did know why he was on the journey. He was there because God told the Hebrew people, take the fight to the Philistines. In fact, they were commanded from the earliest days, cleanse the land of all the Philistines. 
He knew the why, even if he didn't know how the journey and where the journey would take him exactly. Nehemiah was told by God to build a wall in Jerusalem. He didn't know exactly how he was going to get it done or how long it would take. Nor did he know the opposition of Sanballat and some of the others who opposed him and tried to usurp his authority and destroy his effect. And he didn't know all of that. But he did know why he was going to Jerusalem because God said, build the wall. In our life, uh, we don't always know what tomorrow is going to bring. We never do. But we know why we're living this life. Some people would rather have a map, and a map that shows you where you are and where you're going and exactly how you're going to get there. God doesn't give us a map, does he? He gives us a compass. He gives us a direction. The direction is live by faith. The direction is walk with me. That's the direction. Sort of like driving a car at night. When you drive at night, you can't see very far down the road. You see as far as your headlights take you, but that's far enough. All you have to see is the next step. Just far enough. And that's essentially what Jonathan had, and that's what we have. We can't see beyond the headlights. We can't see beyond the next step. But we know why we're on this journey. Some of you, no doubt, have journeyed through cancer and death of a spouse and parents and children and all kinds of things. It's the lot of life in this world. And yet, in the midst of that, the why of walking through all of this with Jesus, who said, Lo, I am with you always, even to the very end of the age, with that promise in your heart, you're able to take this journey. You know your why, and you're able to move forward. Something else we see in the text, and that is the provision never precedes the calling. Jonathan was called to do what he did, and God provided the, the victory as Jonathan stepped out. And that's always true. Jonathan, no doubt, you would think, had fear in doing what he did. Interestingly, however, we're not told how Jonathan felt. We're told what he said and what he did. But as he was attacking uphill, did fear ever enter his heart? Did he ever wonder, oh man, what kind of mess did I get myself into? How am I going to get out? We don't know. We have to believe that God got him through the fears and the anxieties and the uncertainties of being obedient. I read about a man who uh, was afraid to fly. In fact, he was terrified of flying. More of crashing than flying, as he said. <laughs> and it was interesting. The thing that got him over his fear of flying was about a week after 9-11. And watching those planes crash into the Twin Towers, and most of us, were, we remember that, and we remember that flying was shut down in this country for about a week. And this man was at USC, 
in California, University of Southern California. And he said, I remember the first airplane, the first plane I saw in the sky after 9-11. It was about a week later. And he said, when I watched that plane in the sky, I realized I was witnessing an act of defiance. Those people were in that plane defying those who wanted to destroy our way of life. And that enabled him to get over his fear of flying. He knew the why. It was about the American way of life. It was about freedom. It was about not letting cowardly terrorists destroy our lives and fill our hearts with fear. When you know the why and you step out in obedience to what God wants you to do, He provides you the means to do it. Whether it be overcoming fear, whether it be financial means or the energy, God provides the means. He did that for Jonathan. You know, one of the songs we sometimes sing is Leaning on the Everlasting Arms. Someone, I can't remember who, said... When we lean on God's arms, do we lean forward? Or do you picture yourself leaning backward? Are you on your toes, moving forward? Or are you on your heels, falling backward? That image, I think, is a helpful image concerning those who live by faith and those who move forward those willing to take risk, those willing to trust God, and those who are at this moment too fearful to do so. How about you? It's interesting that Jonathan did not see the power of God displayed until he stepped out. He said, perhaps the Lord will do something. And in verse 15, after God enabled Jonathan to kill the 20 Philistines. In verse 15, terror spread through the Philistine camp and the open fields and all the troops. Even the garrison and the raiding parties were terrified. The earth shook and terror spread from God. So after Jonathan stepped out and did what God gave him to do, God showed up and spread terror and shook the earth and brought the victory. Not only that, but when people see God at work through you, it encourages them. If you're a dad and your kids see you living by faith and making decisions by faith, it affects the kids, doesn't it? And the wife. In this case, what the text tells us is that the Hebrews, who were sort of on the sidelines, joined the battle. And not only that, the Hebrews, who had gone over to live with the Philistines, left the Philistines and also joined the battle against the Philistines. One person of faith, in other words, can affect many, many others. When others see God at work in your life and working through you, and empowering you, they often want in on that. We see that in the text. 
So, I ask the question, how are you in your life stepping out, doing what you cannot do without God, living by faith, so that you're experiencing the power of God in your life? Not simply as a church, but in your family. Or in your own individual life. And God's at work in my family. He's doing things in my kids and my grandkids' lives. And partly because of the way I'm demonstrating a life of faith before them. One of my favorite stories from history is the founding of Israel as a modern nation. And there's a book, O Jerusalem, which is an amazing book. It's almost a day-by-day as to how that happened. And it's, it's, it's miraculous. I mean, I don't know how else you describe it. But one of the stories is Golda Meir, who is the mother of the modern nation of Israel. Some of you remember the name Golda Meir. She was the prime minister of Israel, became that. David Ben-Gurion was the father of Israel, the first prime minister, and then she was a prime minister later. But they were meeting in the fall of 1947, January. And about six months later, they would have their country. The problem was they had no guns, no tanks, no planes, not one plane, no mortars, no nothing. And they had no money to buy anything. And the British wouldn't let them bring any arms into the country prior to the day of of independence. And intelligence told them they would be attacked by five Arab armies on the day they got their country, which happened, by the way. They were attacked. It's an incredible story what led up in those last six months. One aspect of which was Golda Meir and David Ben-Gurion were meeting with others, and they said, we've got to go to the United States. We've got to get money out of the American Jewish community who had been tapped out, and they determined the American Jewish community we're not going to do anymore. But they thought, we've got to do it. And David Ben-Gurion wanted to go, and Golda Meir wanted to go, and they voted, and they sent Golda. Golda went straight to the airport. She had a $10 bill in her purse and no coat, and she flew to New York City. It was cold, no coat, $10. She knew a friend. She hadn't been there in 10 years, but a person who she knew from that time back met her and told her, that basically all of the Jewish leaders in America were meeting in Chicago the next day. And so he got her to Chicago the next day. Unannounced, they let her on the platform to speak to all of these Jewish leaders. And essentially what she said was this, I'm not here to ask your permission as to whether we will fight and die to secure the nation of Israel. She said, we will fight, we will die. The best of us will shed our blood for sure. But for us to have a chance, we need your money. We will shed our blood. We need you to give your money. We need $25 million, not in six months. That will be too late. I need it today, $25 million, and that gives us a chance to maybe be successful. Well, that speech garnered her $2 million that night and $50 million within six weeks. And they were able to purchase just enough so that when the day of independence came, they could hold on, barely, and establish the nation. Now, that's a 
She was not a Christian, by the way. <laughs> she was a socialist, probably, maybe even more than that. But she believed in her cause and was willing to step out and do what she could to make that happen. You and I have advantages that she didn't have. We have the Holy Spirit of God within us. We have the call of God upon our life. We have the certainty that God is with us and will never leave us nor forsake us. And with Him in our life, we have the ability to do what Jonathan did. To step out and do that which God has called us to do, even though we have no idea how we're able to do it. Now, there may be someone here this morning who's not yet given their life to Jesus. And this doesn't hardly make sense to you. But what I would tell you is this. Most of us here believe that when Jesus died on the cross, he died to cleanse us of our sin, to take away our guilt and our shame. Because we've all done things for which we are ashamed. And we're all guilty. But Jesus took the punishment through his death on the cross. And we believe that when Jesus was buried in that borrowed tomb, that three days later he was raised from the dead, demonstrating that he is who he said he was, the Son of God and the Savior of the world. And not only was Jesus raised from the dead, but he was witnessed by Peter, James, John, Mary Magdalene, Salome, and 500 at one time, we are told in 1 Corinthians. They saw him as a resurrected Savior, and it changed everything in their life and everything throughout history since. And those men and women went throughout the world, including to the place where Scott just was, and they preached Jesus, and they saw the world changed forever. That's why most of us are here. But if you don't yet and haven't yet surrendered your life to Jesus, I would just urge you to do that today because he does give you the ability to live by faith and not by sight, to overcome your fear. Because there are fearful things in this world, death being the most fearful of all. And yet, Jesus overcame death and sin and hell and the grave. And he does the same for us. So BJ's going to be here to receive you, one of your pastors. With any decision the Lord lays upon your heart, Scott's going to come and lead us in a song. In fact, the song is so very appropriate to the text. Wherever he leads, I'll go. Wherever he leads. So if you need Jesus, he's leading you here this morning. BJ's here to receive you. But there may be other very personal decisions some of you need to make. If you're honest with yourself, you're living by sight, not by faith. Today you're going to turn around from that sin and you're going to face Christ and you're going to commit to live by faith as best you can from this day forward.